Welcome to TheOpenWord.org, featuring the teaching ministries of Alan Schaefer. Currently, Alan is serving as an adjunct professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute, as well as leading almost weekly classes with his local church. With over 3,000 hours of recording since 1988, TheOpenWord.org contains theological studies, biblical surveys, homemade videos, and even small glimpses into Alan's personal life. We invite you to a source for verse-by-verse exposition of nearly the entire Holy Bible at TheOpenWord.org. Thank you. Welcome to our eighth lesson in the Gospel of John. We now come to Christ's final week of his earthly ministry. It starts out with him being anointed by the very costly ointment in the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, followed by a triumphal entry into Jerusalem and his final words in the temple. So join us today as we begin our study. Father, thank you for this night and for being here, and I pray that um, as we study your word that you would challenge us, open our hearts, give us understanding, guide our discussions. Thank you for this great privilege of being here and studying your word. Challenge us now from your word in Christ's name. Amen. See, we're supposed to be in chapter 13 tonight, but um, we're going to finish. We're going to do chapter 12 and probably get in a little bit of chapter 13. We'll see how far we go. But we've got a little bit of um, wiggle room built into the rest of the schedule here. So, you know, we'll. I planned it because I knew we we're going to slow down when we get to like 14, 15, 16, 17. That's, those are some meaty chapters there. I want to spend more time in them. So we got some little buffer built in. But anyways, we're here in chapter 12. And of course, um, we have just had the account of Christ raising Lazarus from the dead. And the upshot of that was what? He raised him from the dead. What was the response? They got mad, right? Why were they mad? Because now they believe that the people are going to be flocking to Christ and the Romans are going to get yeah. involved. And, and, and what's amazing is it never occurred to them. And this is the nature of unbelief, folks. This is the nature of unbelief. It doesn't matter what miracle is done. It doesn't matter what wonder is performed. People are going to miss it. They're going to reject it. Again, we've got to we've got to resist this concept. Well, if we could just do a miracle, if if people would just see a sign, they would believe. No, they won't. And in fact, we're going to in chapter twelve here. We're going to hit that. Where where, where Christ basically says, "I'm done with signs." I've done sign after sign after sign, and they will not believe. I'm done with them. I'm not going to do it anymore. Um, folks, wonders and signs and miracles will not convert people. They will not do it. Look at Pharaoh. I mean, he, he watched God supernaturally take apart his kingdom. And in the end, what did he want to do? Kill the Jews. Kill the Jews. All right. It didn't matter what God did. He was going to reject it. He was going to fight God's people. And with these leaders, the Pharisees and the religious leaders here, 
It didn't matter what Christ did. Christ raised somebody from the dead. I mean, that. just think about that. Think about the awesomeness of that. It wasn't on the Sabbath, no. This is one of the rare ones where it wasn't. I mean, Christ seemed to take great delight in picking the Sabbath to do his healings because he liked to expose their hypocrisy and their duplicity. But it's an amazing thing. It's like it's like going to a funeral where somebody's been dead and embalmed and they're in a casket and Christ walks in and says, wake up, and they get out of the casket and walk out of there perfectly whole. And yet people would say, I don't believe it. it. must be a trick. Or they just ignore it altogether because, see, they had an agenda. It didn't matter whether Christ was the Messiah or not. He wasn't the Messiah that they wanted. They couldn't control him. Therefore, they had to get rid of him. And people do that today. They want to get rid of Christ. They want to shut him up. Why do you think they want to martyr Christians? They want us to shut up. They don't want to hear it. And that's the nature of unbelief. And you're going to see it as it's worked out here in chapter 12. Unbelief, again, unbelief is a refusal to believe. It's a refusal. And one of the great dangers of unbelief is that it can become hardened to the point of no return, <clears throat> where there is no hope. All right. Um, we got a few minutes. Let's look, let's look at Hebrews. Hebrews is a good book on this. Right, this is something to really wrap your head around and understand because it'll 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 help it'll help with a lot of confusing passages in the New Testament if you really understand this concept. Hebrews was written to Hebrews. That's why it's called Hebrews. It was written to Jews. We don't know the congregation. We know it was written probably sometime in the mid to late sixties. Um, probably after the martyrdom of Paul. We don't know that. Um, we don't know who wrote it. People say Paul did. Some say Timothy. Probably not Timothy. Others say, well, it was Apollos. Or some say it was Peter. We don't know who the author was. But we do know what the theme was. The theme was the superiority of the new covenant over the old. Because what's happening in the mid-60s? Or actually, what is going to soon happen? Destruction of the temple. All right. In other words, it's getting to the point where the old covenant, as a valid covenant, is going away. Okay? You understand what I mean by that? All right. For example, between the years of AD 33, let's say that's, pick that as the year Christ died. Between AD 33 and 70, what you actually have is two valid covenants. Okay? They're valid covenants. You have the old covenant. All right? The Mosaic law, the, 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 the ceremonies and rituals of the old covenant. And then you have the new covenant. When did the new covenant start? 
Pentecost. All right. Now people argue about that. Don't worry about the arguments. It's, the correct answer is Pentecost. It didn't start with Paul. It didn't start with it with Paul's conversion. It started with Pentecost. Okay, that was the birth of the church. But remember who who Paul ran into in Acts 19 when he was on his missionary journey. He ran into some disciples of John. Right? Remember that? And he asked them, you know, have you heard of Christ? And they said, Christ who? They had not heard. Okay. Were those disciples of John, if they had died on their way to meeting Paul, would they have gone to heaven? Yes. Yes, they would have. They were under the old covenant. They had repented. They had believed in the coming Messiah. They had they were they were they were under the old covenant. Once they heard the message of the new covenant, what was their only response? To go forward. You can't go back. You gotta go forward now. Okay? But between that time, you had two valid operative covenants. All right. Some would like to say, well, when Christ died and, was, and rose again, that was the end of the old covenant. That was when it stopped right there. All right. And so, therefore, once Christ rose again, the only way to go to heaven is you have to hear and believe the gospel. I don't believe that. I don't believe that's true. All right. Because what if you were a true believer, a true follower of God in the Old Covenant, you were a godly, and I'm not talking about the ones who did it by works, but ones who truly had faith and truly believed, and you died before you heard the message of the gospel because you were from another country or another land, and God said, I'm sorry, but I changed the rules on you. You're out. Doesn't work that way. By faith. They believe God. But they, but again, in any time of history, you're saved by faith. Right? It doesn't matter when you were born. whether From Adam all the way to the end, you're saved by faith. But the question is, faith in what? What do you believe? And the answer is, well, what did God tell you to believe? Right? What did God tell Abraham to believe? Make a great nation. Leave your land. Go to a nation, to a land I'll show you. Abraham said, okay. Did Abraham know about Jesus? Do you know about the crucifixion, the resurrection? You don't know any of that stuff. He didn't even know about the law. No, he didn't even know. Yeah, it wasn't even there. All he knew is what God told him to believe, and Abraham said, or Abraham said, I'll believe it. What did Noah know? Build a huge boat that's going to rain. Well, it's never rained in my lifetime. And I asked great-grandpa Adam, and Adam said it never rained since he was created. So what is rain here? I think it's his great-grandfather's. Well, it's more than that. It's about like seven or eight greats. But, by the way, Noah's father knew Adam. <laughs> I mean, he lived that long. So, I mean, he just knew what God told him. He said, okay, I'll do that. I'll build a boat. And salvation in any time, in any era, in any any point in history has always been by faith. Faith in what God has said. God gave Israel laws and and told them what to believe. And those Israelites said, okay, I believe that. They were saved. They didn't know all the ins and outs of Christ and the resurrection and the blood atonement. And, but they, 
you know, whatever they knew, they believed in. What did Rahab know? Next to nothing. But she was redeemed. She was redeemed long before the spy showed up because what she did know, she believed. And it's always been that way throughout history. The question is, belief in what? Prior to the giving of the new covenant, they didn't know about Christ. I mean, they didn't know about death, burial, resurrection, the church, the giving of the Holy Spirit. That's all That's all new stuff. That wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. So under the Old Testament, you were saved by believing what God said, all right, about himself. You believe that. In the New Covenant, you believe that. But in the New Covenant, you know the full information. You know about Christ. You know about the cross. Now, God tells you what to believe, and what you need to believe in is what Christ did for you on the cross. That's what's needed now. Did that answer your question? It's it's a bad it's bad theology to say people in the Old Testament were saved by works. They were not. They were not. Go read Romans chapter four. Romans chapter four was Abraham our father justified by works? No. How was he justified? He believed God. How about David? David describes the blessedness of the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. It's not by works. It's not by what they did. It's not by keeping the laws, by their faith in God. The keeping of the law was a byproduct of their faith in God. But it did not produce the faith. You look confused, Gary. Yeah. There are some churches that teach that Jews were saved by keeping the law, by doing the sacrifices. Well, let's think about that. Um, what about Daniel? How many sacrifices did he do? None. He must not be in heaven then, right? Yeah. Well, you were saved by keeping the law. You were saved by believing God. And by believing what God said. And that's always been the case. Throughout history, that has been the case. All Daniel could do was look towards Jerusalem and pray three times. Oh. And Daniel didn't know. I mean, he asked the angel, what's going to go on here? And the angel said, well, it's not for you to know. He didn't have all the answers. None of them did. That's not. That was a mystery. All right? And, I mean, look at the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're scratching their heads, thinking, well, we thought this was the Messiah. We thought it was him, and it, and he's dead. And so Christ had to straighten their theology out on the road to Emmaus and say, no, you missed it. And he showed them how Christ should have suffered and, and died. And, and, and they got it. But you're always saved by, by faith. The question is faith in what? Faith in what God has revealed. What God has told you to believe. That's what you That's what you do. And that belief is evidenced by what you do. It's always evidenced by what you do. If you say you believe God, then that belief should translate into action. Right? Um, if Noah said, okay, God, I believe that you're going to make it rain in 120 years, and he never built the boat, he really didn't believe, right? I mean, that's the message of Hebrews 11 and James. That's the message. If Abel says, okay, I know that God wants a lamb, 
but uh, I'm not going to bring a lamb. I'll bring something else. He didn't really believe God, right? That's Cain's problem. Cain said, oh, he'll take the fruit. That's fine. And it wasn't that Cain just accidentally picked the wrong thing. Cain knew what God wanted. He said, no, I'll bring, I'll bring, I'll bring what I think, I'll bring what he should take. And God's question to him and said, why are you mad? He, the whole, the whole discussion that God has with Cain is, what are you upset about? You know what I want. If you'd have brought it, we wouldn't be having this discussion. But when you, when, when we go to Hebrews, I'm going to look at this thing of unbelief here because that's what we're really hitting at here in John. This, this concept of unbelief. Okay. Yeah. In Hebrews 11, what it says that they didn't receive the promise, where is that because They didn't receive the fulfillment of the promise. No. The promise was, what, Abraham did not receive the, the, the idea of their receiving the full promises. Abraham did not get the land in his lifetime, did he? Did Abraham um, inherit all the land that God gave him in his lifetime? Isaac? Jacob? No. They looked ahead to a future time when they would get it. They didn't receive it at that time. Well, the people who were, they were, you know, were speaking, were spoken of, like Rahab. Yeah. The the idea there, the promise. I think if if I remember what you, if I remember what the passage says, they were looking to the promise of God's fulfillment in the nation and the land, and they did not get that in their lifetime. Isaac didn't get it in his lifetime, but he still believed that God would give it to him someday. And and the idea there is their faith transcended their lifetime. They believe God, even though God will fulfill the promise long after they were gone. They believe God. In verse 39, chapter 11, it says, And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. Yeah, the promise was the, the, the total fulfillment of the... the, the um, the kingdom. What did every Israelite look forward to in the Old Testament? The Messiah. The Messiah. They didn't receive him, did they? And that's what verse 40 is referencing when you say, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Yeah. So their faith in that saved them, but the fulfillment of that that promise was the Messiah mm -hmm. coming. And so apart from the Messiah and the, what we have, they're not complete. No. Outside of the Messiah actually, you know, being there for them. Mm -hmm. But let's look at Hebrews here. Hebrews again is written to the Jews, a group of Jews, and the bulk of them were sitting on a fence. They were still part of the Old Covenant. They still went down to the temple, still did their rituals. But they had been exposed to the truths of the New Covenant. And so what the writer of Hebrews is telling them is get off the fence. you got to go forward. you got to go forward. 
You can't go back. You've got to go forward. All right? And so what he does is he's writing to people who are not yet, listen, who are not yet believers in many cases. They're not yet believers, but they know the gospel. All right? Now that will sort out a lot of the confusion on this whole book. Really, you've got three people he's talking to, three groups of people. You've got those who are truly born again. You've got those that are sitting on the fence, and you've got the unbelievers. And and most part, he's talking to people who are sitting on the fence. And as you he, as he work through this, he's trying to show the superiority of the new covenant over the old. How does he do that? Well, in chapter 1, we've got a better mediator. The old covenant had the angels. We've got the Son. We've got the Son of God. And then he, he talks about the, the superiority of the priesthood. The Melchizedekian priesthood is superior to the Aaronic. Why? The Melchizedekian priesthood has no end. The Aaronic priesthood has a built-in endpoint to it. And Christ is not a priest after the line of Aaron because if he's not of the tribe of Levi. Rather, he's of the tribe of Judah, of which there is no mention of a priest. So therefore, he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and he quotes Psalm 110 in talking about that. And he's, we've got a superior mediator. We've got a superior priesthood. We've got a superior covenant because the old covenant, what did it do? Well, it covered sins for a while, but what did the new covenant do? Take it away, right? And, and, and the writer says, if the old covenant... And by the way, just so you, the, the other argument he makes is the Old Covenant, by definition, was not a permanent one. And why was it not permanent? Because it never took away sin. How do you know that? Well, every year, what did they have to do again? Another Day of Atonement. And that was good for one year. And then you got to come back again. There was no <laughs> removal of sin. There was a covering, but not a removal. In the New Testament, New Covenant, there is a removal. And then in chapter 12, he says, if the Old Covenant, if it was bad under the Old Covenant, if you rejected it, it's worse with the New Covenant. And he's trying to get these people to say, look, you've got to go forward. You can't sit on the fence. It is no longer a valid option to say you're part of the Old Covenant because it's going to go away. Chapter 8, it's like a garment. It's about ready to be wrapped up and thrown out. You've got to go forward. And as he does this, he has these, these warning passages. There's five of them in the book. And when he's really talking to them, he said, you've got to go forward because if you don't go forward, if you do not believe, you're going to fall back into unbelief. And that's really what happened in Israel when Christ was here with the Pharisees. Let's look at the first one, two verses one to four, therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. He's using the editorial we. He's saying we have to grab onto those things we've heard, lest we should slip away, drift away. And the word there is interesting. It means to, to accidentally to slide past the harbor of safety. It's, it's a nautical term. It's like, it's like you've got a boat and you've got to go inside into the harbor. And if you're not paying attention, you could, you could miss the entrance to the harbor and be dashed on the rocks. 
And he's telling them, don't neglect. Don't neglect what you have. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. He said, if you think, he said, if you think it was bad missing the old covenant, it's going to be worse missing the new. And you've got to pay attention and grab onto that lest you slide past. And the warning here is to those who say, who say well, you know, I, I've got time, you know, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'm thinking about it. But, but he's saying, if you don't, if you don't act on the knowledge that you have now, you may find yourself sliding past the safety of the harbor. Neglect. And that's one of the great things. You know, there are people today, they've just neglected the gospel for so long, it doesn't make any difference to them anymore. Because they've not acted on it. Is he telling them here that the old covenant under, Ad, and under for, of Abraham has come to an end, and only those that are in this transitional period, it's sort of a grace period for them to come up to the New Testament covenant, and therefore renewing their faith in God and, and salvation. The, the mess if they don't do that, then they're lost? Yes. Once God's grace for these people covers those that are that have believed him in the Old Testament. They believed under the Old Covenant. They are truly born again. Not, I wouldn't say born again. I hate to use that word. They're redeemed. They're true believers in God. But they have not heard the message of Christ. Those are the ones that are safe. The writer of Hebrews is saying, once you hear the message of Christ, once you've been brought face to face with that, you have only one option at that point. You've got to go forward. And those who are true believers will do what? They will go forward. Those who are not will do what? Reject. Neglect. Fall in them. And that's the warning he's making them here. That's the warning. And the first warning is, don't neglect it because you might slide past the harbor of safety. You might slide past it. And then there's a warning passage in chapter 3 and, 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 and 4 where he's talking about um, the warning using the illustration of Israel. Here's Israel, they come out of Egypt. God does all these wonders and miracles and signs and boy, oh boy, you know, all the stuff going on. And... Uh, they go to Sinai, they get the law, right? They see the thunder on the mountain. And God provides miraculously through the desert. And they get up to the promised land, and they're ready to go in, and what happens? What happened? They sent in 12 spies, right? And what happened when the spies came back? Caleb and Joshua said, let's go, we got it. And everybody else says, we're dead for. We're done. We're dead. Who do, who do people believe? The ten. They cried all night. And what happened the next day? Remember? Yeah, the ten, bad, the ten spies brought back a bad report, got swallowed up by the ground. So you don't need to be a five beta cap to figure out where they went. All right. 
And then what did God tell Israel? You can't go in. And so what did Israel try to do anyways? And what happened? They got beat badly. Yeah. God says, God told, here's the point. Here, here, here's, here's chapter 3 and 4 reduced to a nutshell. Because you would not, now you cannot. Because you wouldn't, now you can't. God gave them the land. It was theirs for the taking. All they had to do was go in, and there wouldn't have been any 40-year wandering in the wilderness. But instead of believing God, they believed the reports of the, 12, of the 10 spies that came back. They were convinced that God had brought them out there to, to kill them. And now, now what moron would think that, right? It's an illustration. It's an illustration of apostasy of unbelief. He said they went for, and, and you understand, Israel, these people, they weren't believing all the way along. And think about it. Look at the miracles that God was doing. The average person there would have seen ten plagues decimate the nation of Egypt. He would have watched a cloud of fire and, 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 and smoke guide them through the wilderness. He would have watched God destroy the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. He would have seen God deliver the tab tablets on Mount Sinai. They would have seen the manna and the water from the rock and everything else and all of God's provision and then to come up to the edge of the land and say God brought us out here for the express purpose of killing us all. You know, we look at that and say, what's wrong with them? What was wrong with them is they didn't believe. It's unbelief. And God said, you know, okay, now you're not going in. In fact, you guys are going to wander around the wilderness till every one of you, age 21 and over, is dead. Is it 20 or 21? I think it's 20 and over. Till your carcasses lie in the desert. And the illustration is because you would not, now you cannot. And the warning is, if you don't act on the information, there may come a time when you can't act on it. And that's what happened to a lot of the leaders in Israel, right? Here's the Pharisees. They watched Christ do miracle after miracle. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He raised the widow of Nain's son from the dead. The guy did one miracle after another, and your conclusion was, he's not the Messiah, he's a devil, he's an imposter. And finally, God says, okay, fine. And Christ told them themselves in John 8, you're going to die in your sins, and where I go, you can't come. Because they would not believe, now they cannot believe. Can't. And the warning to the writer, to the readers of Hebrews, is you better... Do it today while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now's the opportunity for salvation, not tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. Don't harden your hearts as the fathers did in the provocation in the wilderness. And the warning is you gotta you can't 
you can't neglect it. Don't neglect it. But the other thing is, don't fail to respond because if you do, you may be put yourself in a position where you can't believe. And that's something that, that, that's a very important concept to understand. There are people that are under divine judgment right now, even though they're alive. They will never believe. Ever. Because God has given them over to their unbelief. So, so you're saying that at this point in the book of John is the turning point where we're at now? The turning point came a little bit before this, but you see it really come to a head here. And what you see is you see a bunch of religious leaders like Caiaphas and Annas, they are so hardened in their unbelief. That nothing God could do, nothing Christ would do, would sway them from rejecting him. So you're saying that even before Caiaphas makes this pronouncement yes. that one man's going to die for the nation, mm -hmm. even before that, that point has already occurred. Yes. In fact, if you go to Matthew 12, that's really when the point occurs. In Matthew 12, um, the, the, the final straw, so to speak is that the Pharisees or the religious leaders say, you're doing this by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And then Christ really comes after and says, well, now wait a minute. And then immediately after chapter 12, you have chapter 13, the parables of the kingdom. And what you see now all of a sudden is instead of, the offer to Israel for the kingdom is now withdrawn. So it's not an exact part of John where that is, Clearly, boom, this is where it happens. Matthew's the best. Matthew's better, sir. It happened before that. But you see it come to a head, and, and you really see it clearly in John 12 here. All right? Because th this is the, you know, this is this is really the, the pronouncement of judgment, basically. This is the sentencing. You know, the, 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 the trial was over in Matthew 12. The sentence is now proclaimed when Christ comes into Jerusalem. Now, the sentence was there before that, but it's, I mean, that's maybe a good way to, a good, you know, lawyer-type way to, to look at it. You know, the judgment, you know, it's, it's like you have now today. You know, you might be taken to court, you might be found guilty, and then your sentencing takes place, you know, two months later, you know, where now you're, you're sentenced. The guilt has already been, been, Declared. Now comes the sentencing. But Hebrews 3 and 4, don't be like those who come right up, right up to the edge. I mean, they are right there. And because of unbelief and because of their inaction, they fall back and now they cannot. They cannot. Then in chapter 6, we have the next warning passage. This is really one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. But the bottom line is, the writer is saying we don't have to go back and look at the ABCs. We've already got that. Verse 1, laying this, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. What's the elementary principles? Let us go on to perfection. Throughout the Hebrews, that's a word to maturity, to full faith in Christ, to full belief. We don't need to lay, us, lay back again the ABCs because you know them. What's that? Well, not lay again the foundation of repentance from dead works. What's that? The concept of repentance. They knew about that. 
faith towards God. They knew about that, right? They knew that they needed to believe God. Um, the doctrine of baptisms, that is not dunking in water. That is the ceremonial washings of the Old Covenant. You don't need to go back and understand the rituals of the Old Covenant. Um, laying on of hands, what's that? That's not the laying on of hands of the presbytery. What happened when you brought your animal to be sacrificed? You laid hands. If you were to bring your animal, your goat in to be, you know, as a sacrifice, you would lay your hands on the goat, transferring, in essence, your guilt to that goat, and then that goat would be killed. That's what he's talking about here. Of the resurrection of the dead. You guys know that. Eternal judgment, you know that. The, the whole point there is saying, we don't have to go back and lay again the foundation of these things because you know them. What have you not done? You've not acted on them. All right? Because listen, for it is impossible for those who are once enlightened have tasted the heavenly gift and become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall again away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. That is not talking about you losing your salvation, although there's a lot of churches and a lot of groups that say, okay, this is proof positive that you've lost it. Because if you lose it, what does this passage tell you? You can't get it again. Right? You want to be consistent and say you're going to lose your salvation here. You're not going to get it again. So it's not about salvation. What is it about? It is about the enlightenment. He's not saying that these people were truly believers, but what did they know? They knew about Christ. They knew the truth of Christ. They knew the claims. Many of them had seen the miracles, right? Or knew somebody that saw the miracles. Because this is only, you know, 35 years after Christ's death. I mean, there are some people who are probably reading this that remembered being in the crowds when he's taught. They know about Christ. They know the truth. They understand it. And if they say no to that, if they turn away from the a knowledge of the truth and go back, what can God do? You knew. You knew. And here's the, here's the, here's the principle. God's judgment is directly proportional to the amount of light you know. The more you know and reject, the tougher it's going to be on you. Remember when he said Chorazin? Woe to you. It would have been better if you were Sodom and Gomorrah than, than this city because you have the Son of Man here and you don't believe. It's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you guys. And the warning here in Hebrews 6 is there are people that go to your churches and know the gospel. They've heard it. They've heard it. They've heard it. And if they reject that, there's nothing more God can do. There's nothing more that can be done. And if they turn their back and walk away, they're done for. Because God has already given them full light, full revelation, full knowledge. What about Judas? Remember when Judas walked out of the upper room? That This is him. What did Judas know? He knew all there was about Christ, right? He walked with him for many years. He saw the miracles. Watched. He heard the claims. He heard the preaching. And his conclusion in the end was what? 
can you get out of this thing? Take what I can because it's not working out. It's not. Hebrews 6 is a warning to those who are familiar with the truth, who've heard the truth, who know the gospel. If they reject it and walk away, they may never again be brought to, brought to that point of conviction. You look at Judas, he, he betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver. That's what he valued more than his relationship with Christ. Mm -hmm. and then, when he got it, it could no longer fill that spot that he once longed for. Yeah. And he tried to give it back, and it, even doing that wasn't any repentance for him. No. And finally got to the point where he just went out and hunted back. That's, you know, when you look at, when you look at Judas, and see the ultimate rejection of a full knowledge of Jesus Christ for whatever reason. And everybody makes those choices in their life if they reject Christ. There's something in this life that you have decided is more important to you than surrendering it all for Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And then you look at Judas and see what, what happened to him. That's going to happen to everybody mm -hmm. that ultimately rejects Christ. That which you reject him for it's not going to be something that's going to bring you joy and peace. No, it isn't. And the warning in Hebrews 6 is if you don't act upon the knowledge now, you may never again be brought to that point of conviction. You may never again be brought to that. And then in Hebrews chapter um, 10, there's another one. Verse 26, for if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Now again, this verse has been really ripped apart. People say, well, you know, if you commit, if you commit a sin now, you can't be forgiven. Well, that's kind of dumb, right? Because if you can't be forgiven for the sin, you don't go to heaven, right? Well, it's just if you sin willfully. Well, how many of you sin willfully today? Come on, come on. All of us did. Every sin we do is a willful sin. So we're sunk if that's what that, that's not what it means. What is the willful sin? Well, in context, the willful sin is rejecting the new covenant. That's what it is. It's rejecting the new covenant. Because what are you going to do? Well, if you reject the new, here's your, you're a Jew. You're in this audience, you're a Jew, and you say, um, I don't believe the new covenant. I don't believe it. What are you going to do the next day? You're going to go back, bring your goat down to the temple, sacrifice it. What's the writer of Hebrews is saying? What's he saying here? Wasting your, time. Wasting your time. There's no more sacrifice for sin. If you know the truth, if you know the new covenant, if you know the claims of Christ, and you decide that you're going to go back and kill a goat because that blood of the goat is more precious than the blood of Christ, that there is no sacrifice for sin there. You're wasting your goat. And not only that, all you have is a fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who rejected Moses' law died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you suppose? Will he be thought worthy as trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant, 
by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. If you think it was bad under the old covenant, it's going to be worse under the new. Because here's understand what this is saying here. If you decide to go back and kill that goat, what are you saying about the blood of Christ? He was a criminal. He should have died. No, not this. Yeah, well, they're going to have sacrifice in the temple, but that's not what this is talking about no, here. But I'm talking about later. Yeah. The whole point here is that if you are, if you as a Jew reject Christ, you're basically saying he was a criminal. He should have died. His blood is is common. It's worthless. The blood of this bull or this goat is going to take away my sin, but that blood is the blood of a criminal imposter and is worthless. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, you get fiery indignation and judgment. If you know the truth and you turn your back and you walk the other way and you go back to your bulls and goats and rituals of the old covenant, there is no sacrifice for sin. You rejected the truth. This has nothing to do with losing your salvation. It's not. It's people who know the truth and turn their back and walk away. And in context, who's he writing to? Jews. Jews who are sitting on the fence, who have not made a commitment to the new covenant, but they're thinking about it. And they know about it. They know what Christ said, but they've not yet gone all the way there. And if you don't, there's no more sacrifice for sin. Because you know the truth. you got to go forward. And then the other one here is in Hebrews 12. Things look at in a sense then the uh, Jews that were believers and then refused Christ did in, did in fact lose their salvation. They never had it. Well, they were redeemed before. No, they weren't. How was that? If they were true believers. You got to understand election on that one there. You got to understand election. Those who truly were under the old one would receive this with gladness and move forward. Absolutely. Receive this new revelation from God and say, Remember, this is, remember, Hebrews is human perspective. Hebrews is human perspective. All right. This is human perspective. How do you know that a Jew who was redeemed under the Old Covenant was truly redeemed? Because they, they could hear God's hear voice God. and hear the Father's voice and they would come they would to the come Father. To the Son. Yes. Because the Father would draw them to the Son. Absolutely. Jesus said it earlier. Look, if you don't believe in election, you, you, you're really confused on this. You're going to bang your head against the wall. Trying to figure this thing out. It, it really is un. It, it, it really. And I, I don't say that facetiously. I'm just saying when you when you really comprehend the doctrine of election, sovereign grace, from God's viewpoint, and then you start looking at this from the human perspective, it makes sense. The passages make sense. All right. Otherwise, you're all over the map. You're losing your salvation. You got people that are truly saved, and now they're not saved, but then they are saved. But but if if they if they lost it, Hebrews six says they can't get it back. So if you lose your salvation once, you're done for. 
you know, or else you got to find some way to explain around. Look, it's just, it's much less confusing if you understand that there's this, this human thread. What is, from the human perspective, how do I know a Jew? How do, how did, how do we know that those guys that, that Paul met in Acts 19 were truly redeemed under the old covenant? How do we know that? Because when they heard about Christ, they did what? They believed. There was no question. Because what did the old covenant point people to? Christ. Yeah, I'm just going to say that, uh, you know, coming to these classes and uh, sitting and listening to you has helped me really to understand about the, the Bible being, you know, such a consistent book. And that you can take this for, for what it says and other scripture confirms it. And that is what drew me back to Jesus saying. You know, those that the Father give me, he'll, he'll, he'll draw to me. You know? mm -hmm. And so it, it fits perfectly. Yeah. Scripture fits. The other way would be And the warning passages here are from the human perspective. How do you as an individual, how do you know you're one of the elect? Well, you're going to go forward to what? Christ. That's how you know. How do I know I'm one of the elect? Because I believe. That's how I know. Because I because I place my faith in Christ, because there's a change in my life. That's how I know that I'm elect. You can't just sit and quiver and, and, and you know, hope you get there. You, you, there there's, there's a decision, a choice that you have to make. And then the writer of Hebrews is urging these, these Jewish people who are on the fence, come all the way, because if you don't and you slide back, there's no hope for you. There's no old covenant to go back to. There's no safety net to go back to. Once you know the truth, you have to go forward. You cannot go back. And the warning is if you do, you're like the ground that is ready for to be burned. That, that's the imagery in Hebrews 6. You know, the same ground that drinks in the water and, and raises fruit what happens if it raises briars and thistles and thorns? It's good for nothing but to be burned. What's that a picture of? Hell. If you don't, if you don't move forward and you go back, you're like ground that turns into thistles. You, you can't go back. And Hebrews 10 says if you go back, you're saying that Christ's blood and his death, he was a common criminal. He is not our Messiah. He should have died. As an imposter. And that's the very blood that the new covenant is built on. You've rejected your only way. And although you may have thought you were redeemed, in reality, you are not. Because those who are truly redeemed and truly believed and, and were the elect ones, God would draw all of the way to salvation. And then in, in chapter 12, there's the other warning passage where it says, um, verse 18, um, you know, you've not come to the mountain. Here, here, um, verse 14, let's look at verse 14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord looking careful lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. How do you fall short of the grace of God? You don't believe. 
You come up to the edge, you see it, you look at it, you examine it, you understand the claims of it, but you do not act on it. And if you don't act on it, you go back into unbelief, you've fallen short of God's grace. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator, profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. What, what value did Esau place on his birthright? One dinner. It was worth dinner. It was worth dinner. For you know that afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Because he did not value his birthright, he lost it. Even though he wanted it back, it was too late. It's too late. And you know, that was the people knocking on the door of the ark, right? It's too late. Hey, we believe now. Too late. The door shut. By the way, God shut the door. The door shut. Now, those people who were outside the ark, oh, they lived a few more days or weeks. But they drowned. Because they would not believe. There came a point when the door was shut. And he's saying here, he said for, in verse 18, this is the warning, for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire into blackness and darkness and tempest. You didn't come to Sinai. Sinai was a pretty terrible place to be. You remember it smoked, it thundered, and if you touched the mountain, what would happen? You'd be killed. And the sound of trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what so was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. Look, when you go back and look at Exodus 18 and when Israel came up to the, to the Mount Sinai, it was a scary thing. The mountain shook. It was covered with fire and smoke. And if anyone would touch the mountain, they were to be killed. He said, you know, that was bad. That was really bad. But you know what? You've come to what? Mount Zion. You've not come to the earthly mountain. You've come to the heavenly one. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. But see that you do not refuse him who speaks, for they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth. Much more shall we not escape or return away from him who speaks from heaven. You think it was bad in the old covenant, bad with Mount Sinai. If you turn away from the one who speaks from heaven, that's really bad. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he promised, saying, Yes, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Pardon? Oh, you about to explain that? Uh, verse 26. Yeah. What about? I said, I said, were you about to explain? Oh, yeah. That? When God spoke on Mount Sinai, what happened? The mountain shook. Right. But what happens when he speaks from Zion, the heavenly mountain? Not only the mountain shakes, the earth shakes and the heavens shake and everything shakes. The, the, the bottom line here is he's saying, if it was bad when you rejected the law under the old covenant, that's nothing compared to rejecting the law under the new.
Don't go back. Don't fail to reach the promise. Don't fail to enter the rest because if you come right up to the edge and you're just about ready to believe and you turn your back and go the other way, you're going to be under such severe judgment and condemnation. And you may never come back to that point of repentance. You may never come there. You know, I mean, if, if any of you have been in church over the years, you've seen people that have been under conviction of, of, of this gospel and they've, they've known what it was about and they've been convicted and they didn't act on it and they turned their back. How easy is it to talk about them, to the, about them with the gospel now? They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. They rejected it. They don't want to hear it. And theologically, you need to understand that God, being a good Calvinistic sovereignty of God person, God does not owe anybody an opportunity for salvation. And when God offers it to someone and they reject it, God is under no obligation to offer it again. If he wasn't under obligation to offer it the first time, he's certainly not under obligation to offer it a second time. Now, he might in his grace. He has the right to do that. But he's under no obligation to do that. And people who constantly harden their hearts reach a point where they become so hardened that finally God turns them over to that hardness. Look at Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then finally he says, and then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Because Pharaoh's heart had already been hardened by his own decisions and choices. What movie was that? The animated. Okay. It's the feature-length animated movie. We were the only ones there on Friday night. I was alone. One person. Wow. Wow. An audience. An audience for a buck. Is it new? It's new. It came out last weekend. Yeah, it was. It opened last weekend, but I don't think it's coming back. Probably nobody's going to show up at it. Yeah. Pardon? No. Going back to John 12. Well, it's not, again, the important thing is context, 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 right? Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Someday when God speaks in judgment, what happens to the entire created universe? It goes away. What's going to remain? The things that are not shaken. And I think he's showing the temporality of the old covenant over the new. The old covenant was good. It was there for a purpose, but it had its time and it's going to go away. So the things that, that cannot be shaken, they remain. Oh, are those um, the believers? Eternal things. Those are the things of eternal, while well, we are going to be part of that. Yeah, those are eternal things. The earth, the heavens and the earth, they're, they're temporary. This is a temporary planet. We're in a temporary universe. It's going to be recreated at some point.
So let's go back to John 12. That's just the uh, background of John. But that's going to help you understand what Christ is going to be talking about here in John 12. That's a long intro to this chapter. All right. And it's going to make sense why we did that. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. Um, where was Jesus prior to this? Where is he staying? Yeah, he, he had left and gone to that other town, about 15 miles away from Jerusalem, to hide himself. Hide himself. And uh, when Lazarus, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, that was pretty, you know, that was getting close to the Passover season. So Christ stayed at this other place for a little bit of time. And then six days before the Passover, so that would have been what? What day would that have been? Monday. Monday. Let's see what it would have been. Six days before the Passover. The Passover was on Saturday. It had been a Sunday. I take it back. It had been Palm Sunday. Sunday. He came to Bethany, um, and there they made him a supper. And Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. So he came back to his friend's house to have supper. And uh, Martha there, she's, she was the busy bee, wasn't she? Remember? You know, she's sort of the one that worries about people eating and tell Mary to come help me. But again, what is Mary up to? Yeah. She wants to be with Christ. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Um, in those days, you know, perfumes and all that, very expensive, extremely, extremely expensive. Um, the spices were rare, was hard to make, um, and I think in some of your, some of the translation, well, and later on, um, Judas asked, why wasn't this sold for 300 days wages? So just do the translation in your own mind. You know, take 300 days, take a year's wages for you. That's how much this ointment cost, which tells you something about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, right? They weren't poor, poor. They weren't, you know, dirt poor. They had some level of affluence. All right. And she took this oil and poured it out on Christ's feet. And of course, in those days, you went everywhere in your feet and they were smelly. And one of the things you had to do when you went to a home is you'd wash your feet. You know, that was a very important thing to do. Um, in fact, later on, what does Christ do with the ferret with the, in the upper room? Yeah, that was a very you know, important thing to do it was good manners to do that. And how did Mary wash his feet? With the ointment. With her hair. And in fact, it was so, the smell was so powerful it filled the entire house. With the smell. Um, what does this tell you about Mary? Right. And, and the question we have to ask ourselves is, you know, how how extravagant are we when it comes to Christ? 
What would we have done? What do we sacrifice? Yeah. What's it cost you to follow Christ? What's what do you what what's it costing you? Um, you know, I think that's really the message. You know, we've talked in here before about giving. Giving is not a percentage. Giving is what's it cost you to give? If it doesn't cost you anything to give, have you really given anything? Right? I think you see the principle behind it, too, because, you know, for the things in this life that we truly love, we put forth the extra effort to be a part of it and, or to partake of it or to do it, whatever it might be. And you see Mary, uh, Mary here who, who loves the Lord and she wants to express it. And she's using that oil as that expression of her love, which tells you she thinks very highly. If, if, if you really love someone, do you look at the price tag necessarily? No. No, you don't. If you really love someone, you're not cheap about it, right? You, you give your, and, and you give to the point where it's going to cost you something. That's right. Remember the guy said, here, just take the oxen. Dave said, no, I'm not going to give anything to the Lord that didn't cost me anything. Yeah, I'm not going to give anything. The guy said, Dave said, I'll buy the oxen because I want to make a burnt offer. Oh, you can have them. No, no. I will not sacrifice anything to the Lord that costs me nothing. What it, yeah. I was just going to say, wasn't it? It's a verse of Second Corinthians, Jay, that tells us that uh, the attitude is more important than your mind. Yeah. It's a cheerful giver. Yeah. Like or something. It's a cheerful giver. And, and God wants you to give because you love Him. Mary gave everything here. Now, that doesn't mean that we all have to go out and cash everything out and give it to the church. That's not what's being talked about here. But when it comes to your giving, if you're constantly saying, well, you know, I can't give the Lord because i got to pay for my boat and i got to pay for this and pay for all the things of this life, do you really love him? I mean, this is a quite a bit of money here. Now, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were wealthy. I mean, they weren't, you know, penniless. But nevertheless, this was a significant gift. Expensive. But Mary thought nothing of it because she loved her Lord so much she didn't even look at the price tag. Um, Ken um, talks about the possibility of, uh, you know, Jesus' words about uh, the oil and the action of being an anointing for his burial and how there's no opportunity later right. for it to be done. And how Mary may have received something from the Spirit prompting to do that. No doubt she did. Because she loved Christ. Yeah. And she wasn't going to hold anything back. No, nothing she had was more valuable than him. And that's the story about the woman washing Jesus' feet with her hair. With her hair crying with tears. No. Some have tried to make it out to be Mary Magdalene. I, I don't think it was her. 
But she was a woman of not a very good reputation. No, but she knew her way into the Pharisee's house. She knew how to get into his house, didn't she? Yeah. Makes you stop and wonder about that. Hmm. And that she could get in. There's another one. Makes you wonder if the Pharisee had something going on the side there. But the whole point here is that she, Mary, was willing to give it all. And one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? It sounds like a pretty sanctified response, isn't it? Hey, we should give this money to the poor instead of dumping it out on the floor. But what was his uh, what was his real motive? He was a thief. He held the bag and stole from it. Now, do you think Christ knew that? How long did Christ know that? From the beginning. But what is Christ doing with Judas? Letting out the rope, right? Letting out the rope. Okay. So no one can look at Christ and say, you know, you were you were too hard on poor old Judas there. Gave him every chance. Gave him every opportunity. And Judas, of course, said, well, he didn't care for the poor. He was a thief. Had the money box and used to take what was used to take what was put in it. Which sort of explains the old 30 pieces of silver deal, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe the maybe the box is running a little thin here and he needs some money. So I know I'll sell Jesus to get some money. What's a profit of man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? That's Judas, right? But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you always. But me you do not always have. You always have the poor, but you don't always have me. What does that mean? What's he, what's he trying to get there? Hmm? Yeah, I'm not going to be here forever. I'm going away. I'm going to be gone. You've always have the poor, and and the only idea there is no matter how much money you give the poor, what happens? They're still poor. Lyndon Johnson tried, you know, his war on poverty. That didn't work, right? No matter how much money you give, there's some people you can give them all the money in the world. It doesn't make any any difference. They're still poor. Because it's 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 a hard attitude, and Christ is just trying to say there. He's not trying. This is not to put down the poor or in any way denigrate the poor or anything like that. He's just saying you've got a comparison here. You've got you got me. You know, I'm going to be. I'm I'm dying. I mean, Christ knew that. Christ knew he was on his way to the cross. And I said, I'm not going to be here much longer. And, and and later on, when we come back from our break, we're going to see that he said. You know, you've got the light with you a little while, and then it's going out. This is the opportunity that you have. You've always got the poor. They're going to be here long after I'm gone, but I'm not going to be here. And he came, this is the second time he's come to Mary's defense, right? And you wonder, outside of God, what man could say that and not be arrogant or conceited? Not many. Christ honored Mary's attitude. 
you know, she she had a heart for him. Not for what he gave her, what he did for her, but for him. And when he showed up, and she'd been working, you know, she, he had raised her brother from the dead. He had, he had brought her brother back to life. How could she not give him this? How could she not pour this out? She didn't even think about it. She just did it. <clears throat> impulse from the spirit but an impulsive thing nevertheless and Christ honored her for that you always have the poor but me you do not always have and what's interesting what I, what I like about Mary is she knew she seemed to know who the important what the important thing was and she wasn't going to let any other distraction keep her from the important thing. It's more important for me to listen to Jesus than it is to help Martha do the dishes. That's more important. And Christ honored her for that. And he honored her here. Thank you for listening to today's study in the Gospel of John. Part 2 of this class can be heard in the next podcast in this series. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.